the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. It's Tuesday. That means we don't have a lot to talk about. We get right to the questions. But I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about anything going on in your life, church questions, whatever's on your heart, we need you only to call. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvaryessay.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Only one reminder before we get to the questions. Um, This is a short week. Tomorrow will be the last day of the week for a live program. Uh, KSLR, the studio is closed on Thursday and Friday for the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, And we will be running repeat broadcasts and then, Lord willing, we'll be back on Monday rested and refreshed and ready to go for a whole new week. Is anybody else crazy with me about how fast November is going? This is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Okay, let's start with the questions that have been sent in. This one is anonymous from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron, are you in agreement that the Black Lives Movement is a demonic organization? Uh, Anonymous, no, it's not a demonic organization. It is an antichrist organization. There is nothing in the Black Lives Movement, um, uh, the organization, there's nothing in it that uh, is consistent with our Bibles, consistent with the Word of God. Um, And so what they stand for is exactly the opposite of what God stands for. For example, uh, BLM has long been known for, and this is just from their own website, so uh, I'm not slandering anybody uh, they're they're for the breakdown of the of the nuclear family unit um that's one thing for sure they are they're uh, uh very pro um lgbtq lifestyles uh just pretty much anything that the bible says that we ought to be to honor the lord the black lives movement is against so having said that let me make a separation between the black lives movement And the phrase or the slogan, Black Lives Matter, Um, God would agree very wholeheartedly. Jesus is is giving high fives. Yes, Black Lives Matter a whole bunch, along with everybody else's life. So this is a distinction that needs to be made. I also don't want to broad brush the organization. There are people who have the right hearts and the right motives who are part of the organization, Uh, people who probably aren't aware of everything that they stand for or what their agenda truly is. But uh, the Black Lives Movement as an organization, not demonic, 
but certainly it's antichrist in that it stands opposite everything that the Bible tells us to do. So thank you for that. I hope that works. Here is another anonymous question from our email inbox. These are the kind that always hurt my heart a little bit. When my husband gets upset, or if I ask a question or make him comment about something we're doing, and he's not in agreement, or if I'm not in agreement with him, he always seems to call me names. Examples, controlling, contentious women, or I have a rebellious spirit. I honestly just uh, want communication on what's happening or what's going to go on next. He says I need to be quiet and trust him. When my husband calls me those names, it's hard to trust him. Please help. Any advice on what I can do to help out the situation? Yeah, the very first thing, and this is really important, and you know what? I'm convinced that almost nobody ever takes my counsel on this. You and your husband need to get in pastoral counseling immediately. You're a Christian. I'm assuming your husband would say he's a Christian as well. He's misquoting the Bible, uh, certainly misunderstanding willfully what it means to be a a husband, a spiritual leader of the household. Uh, But you need to get into pastoral counseling immediately. That's what churches are for. That's what pastors are for. Uh, They want to help you walk with Jesus, and certainly this is a house divided. Amos 3.3 says, how can two walk together unless they agree to do so? And uh, you're not walking together. Now, something else I want to communicate here, and this is for the men out there, not just for you, Anonymous. This is for the men out there. How would you ever explain these kinds of responses uh, to your wife, even if her behavior isn't something that you're particularly appreciative for? Uh, how would you ever explain these kinds of, of responses to Jesus? How would you explain telling Jesus, I have a wife with a rebellious spirit? Would you say, well, that's why I'm being a jerk? If you raise your voice at your wife, if you use these kinds of, of labels, you're a controlling woman, a contentious woman, you have a rebellious spirit, how would you ever explain that to Jesus? You know what? I think Jesus would look at you And he would say, uh, and I'm going to quote the great movie, Remember the Titans here, um, um, leadership. Sets the example. Leadership. Sets the example. So if, if this is the way you lead your home, you're completely misunderstanding the kind of leader God wants you to be. Now, man, this ought to create a healthy fear of God in our hearts. We're going to give account of our stewardship of the wives that God has given us. And if your wife isn't in agreement with you, maybe God is using her to keep you from making a mistake. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 says, because of our fear of God, we're to submit one to another. It says that before it ever submits, says, wives, submit your husbands as unto the Lord. So um, what you need to do is get into pastoral counseling. Uh, if he is unwilling to do it, then you go and and speak with pastors or speak with, with, uh, with some of the, the women in the church. But you need right now to be as close to Jesus as you possibly can. The other thing I would say to, to all men out there is that Our wives are never to trust us. That's not why God asks them to submit to our leadership. God asks us to trust him and submit to our husband's leadership. Trust him. Paula can't trust me. Now, I hope I've earned a degree of trust. But remember, for for most of our marriage, I was Ron the Jerk. She couldn't trust me. That would have been foolishness on her part. So anytime a man says you need to be quiet and trust him, then you've got a man who is not following Jesus. Do you still submit to his leadership? Yes. But you talk to him about it. This is another example, Anonymous, where a husband and a wife are not in a word together. They're not praying together. They're not fooling Jesus. This is a situation that needs the Lord's intervention. So, Anonymous, 
uh, all you can do, read First Peter chapter 3, um, the, the beginning of the chapter, the first um, five or six verses, uh, and be like Sarah. You make sure you're walking with Jesus. You're doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. And then pray for your husband and let God have his way with him. I promise you, Jesus will work on him as long as you're doing your part. Thanks very much for that. Let's go to Victor on line one from San Antonio. Victor, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Afternoon, Pastor Ron. Thanks for taking my call. Uh-huh. I have a question on the um, on on the uh, what do you call those uh, the festivals, the those seven feasts in the Old Testament. Um, mm-hmm. The the the, the uh, you know how the Lord uh, the uh, the first four happened in order, uh, starting with the um, with the Passover and all that. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I know that I spoke with you before that you you do believe that the uh, rapture of the church would occur on one of the feast days. And um, and I, I was I, I've, my understanding is that that there there are those that teach that it's going to happen uh, on um, on on the uh, Feast of Trumpets, and I believe you said you believe it, that the rapture is going to happen on uh, the Feast of Booths. Uh, yeah, now let me, let, yeah, Victor, Victor, let me let me clarify something. Um, when I said the return of Jesus, I, I and I, I remember the, or the phone call some time ago, uh, but uh, the return of Jesus, I'm thinking about the return of Jesus to this earth after the rapture of the church. So uh, the rapture isn't isn't connected really to any particular festival or feast, um, and and it isn't necessary that it is. But the return of Jesus is going to come, I believe, on on the day that that Jews would be celebrating the uh, the the uh, festival of the booths or tabernacles. So uh, that that's just an opinion, and uh, your opinion is as good as my opinion. But uh, the rapture of the church is not connected necessarily to any of the Jewish festivals at all. It sounds like uh, that it could be, uh, there could possibility because of just the wording that, you know, that the, that the last trumpet, you know, and, and then, the, well, then you have the, the feast called the Feast of Trumpets and, it just sounds like they might there might be a connection there. So uh, yeah, thanks for I, I, okay, and 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 Victor, I, I don't think uh, the the trumpet calls from First Corinthians chapter fifteen uh, is not connected to the trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation at all. Completely different uh, wordage and symbolism, and and the last trumpet is a very Jewish way of saying that call to readiness. And, of course, Jews would remember that there were three trumpet blasts. One would be to assemble. Another would be uh, to, uh, to, to uh, be ready for, um, um, to get up and leave. Uh, the, the, the final trumpet, the last trumpet, would be a trumpet. So it's time to go to war. And and I think that's what the last trumpet is all about, First Corinthians 15. And it's not a literal trumpet. And I don't think, again, there's any connection uh, between that and the festivals or the Feast of Trumpets. One of the things we have to remember is that God right now is done dealing with Israel. Once the rapture of the church happens then he will once again turn his attention to Israel and he will come and deal with the world in judgment. But um, right now, in this this dispensation of grace, God is dealing with the world because of grace, by faith, and praise the Lord for that. But uh, his his focus is not at all on on Israel. His focus is on the church. And I think sometimes we Gentiles have a tendency to try to get too Jewish in our thinking and and even in the way we interpret Scripture. And um, the the Gentiles and the Jews um, are completely different economies at this point in time. We do have Jews becoming Christians, but God is not dealing with national Israel until after the rapture of the church. Victor, thanks very much for the question. I will do my best to be a little bit more clear in the future. 340-9585, and we love to have your calls and questions. Here is a question from Ariana. Um, 
Pastor, will you please explain Matthew 10.41? I'll read it and then I'll do my best. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. Here's what this is all about. It's not as complicated as we make it. Um, and by the way, in the verse before that, it says, He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives the one who sent me. And then he goes on in the verse after it, verse 42, And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, because he's my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. Now here's what he's saying. Since only God can reward us for the work being done uh, in the world, um, you know, the world that we live in is sort of dog-eat-dog world. And, and Jesus says to us that we're to help those who are helping me. And here's what he's saying, Ariana. I'll reward you exactly the same way I reward them. So that's important. The prophet is a servant. Uh, the one who gives a cup of cold water to one of the little ones, one of the children. Um, or the, the one who um, receives him. Um, or or receives a righteous man for no other reason he's a righteous man will receive rewards and the emphasis here is on the equality of rewards now let's think about it in in an individual church those of you who serve your church faithfully you're going to receive the same reward that for example the pastor of that church receives doesn't matter what role you're serving but if you're serving faithfully, if you're doing your part, what you've been called and gifted to do, then you will be rewarded just along along with the greatest. You see, we're all rewarded on the basis of what we did with what we've received. I think sometimes, and this is a very Western idea, we think those who are the biggest or the most important or the the most famous, they're going to get the big rewards, when in fact, um, all the rewards are going to be the same. As a pastor, uh, I hope I'm going to receive rewards for being faithful, but uh, my reward won't be any greater than the greeter here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio who welcomes people every day and is faithful to rightly represent the Lord. My reward won't be any greater than the husband who is faithful at home and serving his wife and children. Um, the, the, The people that work in children's ministry uh, they're going to get the same rewards that I do, even insignificant. And when I say insignificant, there's no insignificant act in the family or the kingdom of God. But even those that we, from a perspective of earth, seem or deem more insignificant, the, the most insignificant act of even kindness, those will be rewarded. And, and uh, I always like to remind people that that promise is coming from the one who cannot lie. So, Ariana, that's what's in view there. It's very simply that this is the the uh, equality of rewards based on the gifts and opportunities that were given. Jesus tells parables of talents and parables of minas. The idea is if we're a good steward over what we've been given, we will receive rewards commensurate. You know, we think people like Billy Graham are going to get the greatest rewards. There's going to be a big uh, arena in heaven for him. Not so. Not so. We're all going to get the same kinds of rewards, and I like that. Thank you very much, Ariana. Here is a question from our mobile app. Now, I'm going to read these next two questions together because they're kind of similar. Uh, uh, They're from different people, but um, um, it's, it's easier just to talk about them. Uh, together. This first one comes from Janie from our mobile app. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. When are we supposed to call out people on their sin? How often are we supposed to call them out? And then she says, thank you. The question that is similar comes from Jonathan from our email inbox. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. I have a professing Christian family member who called me and referenced Matthew 7, 5. Uh, it says, you hypocrite, Matthew 7, 5, reading it, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Uh, that's the passage. And then she, uh, Jonathan continues, I was trying to correct him. However, he said, I was judging him, and we're all not perfect. 
I understand I am not perfect, but I don't live in habitual sin like my professing Christian cousin does. When is it okay to call people out? How can we call anyone out uh, without judging them? Are we being hypocrites since we will never be 100% in our own lives? I'm a little confused. Please clarify. Thank you, Pastor. Jonathan, um, uh, you know, when we're correcting somebody in love, the responsibility, the, the, the Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, is, is an idea. We're, we're supposed to check our own hearts first. And, and clearly, you've done that. You know, you should have said, I've examined my own heart, but, but I, 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 I'm, my sins have been forgiven. But what you're doing is wrong. Now, when the person that you're trying to correct is the one that throws that verse out at you, that's just his way of saying, um, um, you're just judging me and nobody's perfect. What he's saying is, look, I'm going to continue to sin, so don't bother me with the facts. And Jonathan, you have a responsibility to correct people that you care for, people that are in your life. Anybody that says they're a Christian and they continue to live in sin, they're judging you, not the other way around. They're judging you when they say, oh, well, you're a hypocrite, and they find some Bible verse. Um, I get so tired, and I deal with this all the time. I get so tired of Christians, professing Christians, who will say, well, nobody's perfect. Don't judge me. Nobody's perfect. But that's not an excuse. That's a complete lack of fear of God. When we're living in sin, God loves us so much, he's going to have people around to point it out. And no, we're not judging. We're just saying, the Bible says that people that are living like you are living and will not inherit the kingdom of God. I want you in heaven, so deal with it. But one of the things that we have to understand is that we can't worry about what other people think when we're doing what the Bible tells us to do. So it's your responsibility when somebody's living in habitual sin. That's your phrase. If you love them, you have to call them out. And when they judge you in response, that's just their own guilt coming to the surface. So it's really, really important. Now, the person who is truly saved wants to be perfect. We aim for perfection. That's what Paul says. But as we aim for perfection and we miss it, then we repent of our sin. Your cousin, in this case, Jonathan, isn't repenting of sin at all. He's making excuses for his sin. And the fact that we can't be perfect is him saying or her saying, um, well, you, you, uh, you're judging me. Um, when in fact, you can look at them in the eye and you can say, look, I want to be perfect. And when I'm not, I stop sinning. I say, I'm sorry. I repent. And you're not. And this kind of a problem, Jonathan, is throughout the church. And people always like, judge not lest ye be judged. And it just demonstrates just the way your cousin's use of Matthew chapter 7, verse 5, understands that he has no idea what the Bible really says. And in all probability, is somebody who's not really saved. He's a professing Christian, but professing Christ doesn't get you to heaven. Being born again is what gets you to heaven. Now, let me deal with Jamie's question about when are we supposed to call out people? Jamie or Janie, I said when, uh, I'm sorry, um, we're, we're always supposed to call people out in sin. We're to have call them out once and twice if they're, if they're still not making any change. Then we're to have nothing to do with them. Paul makes that pretty clear, have nothing to do with the people who say one thing, I'm a Christian, but live in a different way. So once or twice, and then Janie, you just wash your hands of them. You keep praying for them, and you care for them, and you love them enough to, to, to confront them. But um, if they don't respond favorably, then you just have to remove them from your life. Now, that's not to be mean. That's not suggesting that you're better than they are. That's just saying, look, I love you. I want you in heaven but you're not living a life consistent with who you say you are. And the Bible says that I'm to have nothing to do with you. I'll pray for you. I love you. But I can't be your friend anymore. I can't hang around with you anymore. 
And Janie, that's something that most Christians are unwilling to do. And yet what we're doing is we're taking away the veneer of Christianity from people who are acting like unbelievers. So that's what you're supposed to do. You're to, you're, you're to confront them in love. I don't like the word rebuke. I'm not wild about your use of the term calling them out. I think what you do is you call them in. And you say, you tell me you're a believer. And I so want to believe it. I can't even imagine heaven without you. But the way you're living in willful, unrepentant sin points you out as not being a believer at all. You know about Jesus, but you don't really know him. Janie, I just had this message this past Sunday when I told our church, I'm, I'm tired of pretending we're in the last hours of the last days. There's a sense of urgency. And I'm no longer going to be okay with people who pretend they're a believer when they say one thing, but they're living a life inconsistent with that profession of faith. When their home is a mess, when their marriages are a mess, when they use foul language, when they get drink or when they smoke marijuana, or when they, I'm just not going to pretend anymore. I'm going to tell them, look, you need to repent. So, Janie, I hope that answers your question. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the show. 340-9585. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here's a question from Valerie. Pastor Ron, when you feel yourself losing your passion for Jesus what should I do? I like the pronoun, personal pronoun change. When you feel yourself, what should I do? Um, Valerie, you've done the first thing. You've, you've recognized that you're in a really dangerous place. Passion and gratitude is what fuels our walk with Jesus. It, it, it's what insulates us from the attacks of the enemy. So this is a really important question. So important, I'm not going to give you my answer. I'm going to give you Jesus' answer. Valerie, when he wrote uh, in uh, the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches, his first letter was written to the church at Ephesus, a church founded uh, founded by the Apostle Paul, a church that was um, a rock star of churches. If, if, that, if the church of Ephesus lived right now in 2021 in San Antonio, Texas, it'd be like the happening church and a huge building, groomed facility grounds, It'd be teeming with people that have all kinds of ministries and things going on. But but Jesus said, after commending them for the things that they're doing, he said, I have this one thing against you. You've left or forsaken your first love. And Valerie, you're fortunate in a sense that um, you haven't walked away from your first love yet. If If that was the case, you probably wouldn't feel yourself losing passion. Um, so you can make a course correction. You can do it right now. So here's what you do. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, the first thing you need to do is remember. Remember, he says, the heights in which you've fallen. I would explain it this way. Remember, Valerie, when those mornings you woke up and all you wanted to do was hear from Jesus. All you wanted to do was talk to him and praise him and, and walk with him. Whatever it was, you, you just couldn't imagine not hanging around with Jesus. Remember those things and then go back and start doing them. Discipline yourself. We get so busy we forget to make him the priority in our lives. And if you'll remember those times when things were so good, when your heart was so full, when you, you t- had opportunities to tell other people in your life about Jesus. Remember those times. The second step is to repent. 
Every one of us needs to remember that when we lose passion, Paul says we're to never be lacking in zeal, but keep our spiritual fervor serving the Lord. When we lose our passion for Jesus, it's not Jesus who's moved, it's us. We need to recognize that is sin. And we need to repent. And what that means is is make a U-turn. Remember, repent, and the third step is return. Go back and do the things that you did at first. Start all over. Open your Bible and just, okay, Lord, I need to hear from you. And I'm not talking about doing a morning devotion. I'm talking about really reading your Bible. Let the Spirit of God begin searching your heart. And then when you you repent of those things, he'll set your heart on fire again. Jesus wants you to be in love with him. You know, one of the things that I say all the time in my prayers, morning by morning, Valerie, is, Lord, help me to love you more than I've ever loved you before. I never want to forget the need for me to be completely in love with Jesus, consumed by him. So nothing takes the place of Jesus. We have a tendency as humans to take things for granted after a while. We do it in our marriages. We do it with our children. Most importantly, we do that with Jesus. So go back and do the things you did at first. When you get up in the morning, even if you don't feel like it, praise the Lord. Remember the things that he's done in your life. Remember the things that that he's blessed you with and, and praise him for it. Be grateful. I always say to the church here, Valerie, you've heard it on this program. If you've been listening for any length of time, just be with Jesus. Um, we're told that in his presence is the fullness of joy. In his presence, when you're with him, you don't have to worry about passion because it's natural. It's sort of contact uh, result of being with Jesus. And then one other thing that I would, I would say, uh, uh, Paul, in writing to uh, his friend uh, Philemon, who was a pastor, um, he said in the sixth verse of that one chapter letter, he said, uh, I pray that you'll be active in sharing your faith so that you'll have a full understanding of every good thing that you have in Christ. Tell other people about your faith. When you're obedient, the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon us. So tell other people about your faith. Tell them about what Jesus has done. Sometimes people will say, but I don't know that much about the Bible. Well, tell them what you do know something about. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. Once I was blind, now I see. My testimony, Valerie, is easy. Once I was a jerk and people didn't care at all about me. Now I love Jesus and people actually like me. They love me. Share your faith and the Spirit of God will come upon you. And passion will come back. But make no mistake, this is an everyday process. It's something that we have to discipline ourselves to do because our flesh wants to be spiritually lazy. Jesus also addressed the church at Laodicea in the third chapter of Revelation. And he said, and I'm going to paraphrase, he said, you make me sick. The reason they made him sick is because they were lukewarm. They were neither hot nor cold. He said, choose one, be hot or be cold, but just don't be lukewarm. And I think what happens, Valor, when we start losing our passion for Jesus, we've walked right into lukewarm territory. So make a choice. Do you belong to Jesus or do you belong to you? Is Jesus the most important priority in your life or is the world and how you feel and what's going on more important? Those are the questions that we have to deal with. Now, don't do guilt. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1 says. But here's what you do. You just say, Jesus, how did this happen? I know it's not your fault, Lord, it's my fault. But how did I drift away? The book of Hebrews, the very first warning is about those who are drifting away. Drifting happens slowly, almost imperceptibly. You're not even aware of it. It's not like you get up one day and say, I'm just not going to hang out with Jesus. I don't care, boy. It's just, just, it's just a daily life that, that starts drifting. And pretty soon you find yourself so far away from where you were and you think, how did I ever get here? 
Well, Jesus wants to reel you back in now, and all you have to do is give him the opportunity to do so. So, Valerie, thank you for that. I hope that answers your question. A lot of people will be praying for you. Here is an anonymous question. I really struggle with anger. Why won't God deliver me from it? Now, Anonymous, if you're listening, I want you to write this down. Okay, got a pen, paper? He already did deliver you from it. He already delivered you from it. Do you have enough faith to believe that? So I think sometimes we use, well, it's the way I've always been. I struggle with anger. I can't help myself. It's almost like we really can't do anything about it. God, it's your responsibility to change me. He already did. When you were born again, Anonymous, he made you a new person. All you have to do is have the faith to walk in it. And the way you do that is simple. Instead of walking in the flesh, you're walking in the spirit. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. You want to know when you're walking in the Spirit versus the flesh? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Anger is not on that list anywhere else. If you go to Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, you get the list of the really ugly, bad fruit of the flesh and anger and rage and a whole list of other horrible things is on that list. All you have to do when you start to feel yourself getting angry, all you have to do is say, wait a minute, that's flesh. And then we can crucify the flesh. Jesus died in the flesh so we can die to our flesh. And we no longer have to be controlled by sin. So do you have enough faith to believe that you're already delivered from it? By the power of the Spirit, you can do that. Whenever you feel yourself getting angry, just say, wait a minute, there's a flesh alert, flesh alert. And if you'll do that, then you can say, I don't want to do that. One final thought here, Anonymous, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, is a verse that you ought to have tattooed on your brain. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. In your case, anger. Lots of people deal with anger, so you're not the only one. But then the next part of that verse says, and God is faithful. It doesn't say you're faithful. And God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out. So when you start feeling yourself getting angry, all you have to do is say, I don't have to do this. God has given me, and I can, I can handle this. In the power of the Spirit, I can handle this. And you can simply make a choice to walk instead of in anger, you can walk in kindness, or you can walk in patience, or you can walk in peace. And I just think sometimes, Anonymous, maybe it's because the Bible teaching is so bad in in the West. Maybe it's because we just don't listen anymore. Um, but we're not the same people we were. We can walk in the Spirit all day, every day. Betty asked the question, Pastor, how necessary is it to forgive those who have hurt me in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Betty, it's so necessary that it is impossible to forgive if you are unwilling to forgive. I think something that we sort of lose sight of Betty, is that we are expected by God to forgive. He or she, in your case, who's been forgiven much, loves much. Has anybody hurt you? Have they done anything worse to you than you've done to God who forgave you? Forgiveness is the key to freedom in our lives. And the devil uses it all the time. He knows it's such a valuable tool. We'll take some little offense and we'll make a big deal out of it. And basically what we're doing is we're saying, okay, Lord, thank you for forgiving me, but I don't care what's happened in my relationship with other people. They, they hurt me, that's enough. God said, but you hurt me. 
You hurt me. And Jesus' model for prayer. Um, He says that we should pray like this. Father, forgive my sins as I forgive those who've sinned against me. And really, Betty, what he's saying there is forgive my sins in the same measure that I forgive others. If you're holding unforgiveness against somebody else, do you want God to forgive you the same way you've forgiven them? Or more to the point, haven't forgiven them? So that's how important it is to forgive. Now, Betty, I work really hard. Um, I, I, and I've said this publicly before, I always get tested. Um, recently I found there was something in my heart against somebody that I didn't want to deal with. I just, I wasn't aware of it, but, but I would say, I, I don't have any unforgiveness against anybody. I don't hope there's not a single person on this earth that I have something against. Then I saw somebody and, um, there it flares up again. So I had to deal with it. How do you deal with it? Repent. God, how could I forgive? Or rather, how can I not forgive when you've forgiven me of so much? Jesus told parables about this. So that's how important it is. And I'll say one step further, Betty, you are not filled with the Holy Spirit in power if you're holding on forgiveness. You're also giving the enemy an opportunity to mess with you, giving him an opening to attack you. And I don't want to give him any help. He's bad enough without me providing the help. So, Betty, that's how important it is. All that to say is about as crucial as it can possibly be. Thank you for that. Here is a question from our mobile app that came anonymously. Do we need to fear the Lord or does it really matter? Of course, fearing the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what Solomon writes. Uh, Of course, we have to fear the Lord. And it matters more than I can tell you. Now, I think one of the difficulties that we have as New Testament Christians under grace is we get so much Jesus, the Lamb of God, Christmas time coming up, Jesus, baby Jesus. Um, Nobody's afraid of a baby. But we need to remember Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 is the righteous judge of all the earth. And so the fear of the Lord is not only the beginning of wisdom, but it's the key to living. So yes, a holy fear of God. And I guess the best way to explain this, Anonymous, is that it is a fear of not being with him, of not being in his will, a fear of all the things that can happen, all the bad decisions we're going to make, all the the the, the ways that we're going to misrepresent the Lord when we don't fear God. So yes, I'm afraid of him. But I'm also aware that he's my friend. He said that. I call you friends. Hebrew says he's my big brother. We're told he became one just like us in order to forgive our sins so they could sympathize, empathize with our weaknesses because he himself had weaknesses. So what we need is a healthy balance between all of those things. But the fear of the Lord is an absolute essential for a fruitful walk with Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. Here is Ricardo from our mobile app. Is God allowing the world's fires, earthquakes, and pandemics? Are we in the Great Tribulation yet? If God is so good, why does he allow all this evil and pain and sorrow to the innocent, and he's got innocent in quotes, people? Does that sound right, Ricardo? Um, you, you really need to open your Bible and really find out who God is. Can I suggest something for you? Take the book of Ephesians. And do me a favor, it won't take you very long, but read the first three chapters of Ephesians about ten times. Don't go to chapter four, just the first three chapters of Ephesians three times. You want to find out who God is and what he's done? You want to find out if God is good? Read the Song of Solomon, just the parts that are titled Lover. That's God speaking to you. And then before I answer the question that you opened with, this question has to be dealt with 
Why does he allow all this evil and pain and sorrow to the innocent people? Why blame God for the evil and the pain in this world? Why blame him? God is going to rid the world of all evil. He's going to rid the world of all pain. But when he does, when he does, that means he has to judge the entirety of the world. And Ricardo, what that means for you is that if you insist on God bearing responsibility for all the pain and evil, and God says, okay, for Ricardo, I'm going to end it, that means if you're living in sin, he's going to judge you. Peter explains that God is patient, unwilling that any should perish. I'm grateful that God put up with all of the evil and pain and sorrow that I caused all the way to 1991 when I got saved. If he would have dealt with sin before then, I would have been lost. I would have spent eternity in hell. So this idea of God causing or God allowing things, I think that's just a a scheme of the devil. The other thing I want to say before I answer the first question about the fires, earthquakes, and pandemics is there are no innocent people. Ricardo, you don't know a single person who's not a sinner. You don't know a single person who has been obedient to the Lord. You don't know a single person who can stand before God on the basis of his or her own goodness. There is none good, not even one, no one who seeks God, Paul writes to the church at Rome. Paul also says in the third chapter of Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So let's settle this issue of if God is so good once and for all for you, Ricardo. He is so good that he looked down the corridor of time and space and he saw you and the sins that you're guilty of, the things that you've committed, And he said, you know what? I choose to love Ricardo anyway, and I'm going to come and die for his sins so that he can live forever. I'm going to take the punishment that he deserves. I'm going to let them rip open my body. I'm going to let them beat my face beyond recognition as human in form. I'm going to let them spit on me because I don't want them to do it to Ricardo. And he endured the cross. That's how good he is. And I want you to really and truly take that in. Now, the first part of your question, is God allowing the world's fires, earthquakes, and pandemics? Yes, God allows them. They're going to happen. I mean, God just doesn't stop them. I guess if that's what you mean by does God allow them, he just doesn't stop them. You know, when somebody starts a forest on fire or when a forest is grown out of control. Um, Somebody starts a fire or lightning hits. God doesn't come and go and blow it out. So I guess that's allowing it in that he doesn't stop it. But throughout the Bible, we're told that God uses these kinds of disasters to get people's attention. Earthquakes. Um, they're going to increase. They've been increasing. But as we get closer to Jesus' return, those earthquakes are going to increase both in number and intensity. Pestilences. Disease. Famine. And yes, COVID-19. You know, Ricardo, when COVID first hit, I believe the Lord spoke to my heart and said he's going to use this pandemic to shake out, not shake up, big difference, to shake out his church. I think God's as tired as I am, more tired than I am of, of people pretending they're Christians and living life any way they want to. The one thing that we all should have learned from this pandemic, March of 2020, when everything sort of changed, our world changed in an instant, we found ourselves in situations that we never dreamed possible. And every single person who's been affected by this pandemic, and this is a worldwide pandemic. This isn't just local in in one country or another. This is a worldwide pandemic. God's preferred response to that pandemic would be for the world to fall on their face and say, God, we've sinned against you. Please forgive us. Lift your hand against us. God didn't cause this pandemic. But he's certainly using it to try to get us to turn our attention to him. 
And sometimes, Ricardo, and your question's phrased this way, sometimes it's almost like we feel that because we're Christians, God should just not permit anything bad to happen to us. I remind you of the cross. He didn't intervene when his own son was being scandalously and brutally attacked. Even though his son asked him, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass, he considered you worth dying for, worth suffering for. So here's what I would do if I were you, Ricardo. I would take the world that we live in, the, the, the absolute lawlessness, the hatred toward God that Paul describes perfectly in Second Timothy chapter 3, talking about the very last of the last days. And I would get on my face and say, Oh Lord, I don't really know who you are. I'm not suggesting you're not saved, Ricardo. But I really don't know who you are. And I'd open my Bible. I'd make it a point to get to know him and surrender every fiber of my being to him. If you'll do that, Ricardo, there won't be any more questions at all. None at all about whether or not God is good. So, Ricardo, I hope that answers your question. I just had a call in. Uh, my favorite radio caller, Thomas, wants to wish everyone at Calvary Chapel a happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Thomas. We'll have a great Thanksgiving. Hey, don't forget, I'll be here tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. So we're not done with the week yet, and we'd love to have your calls and questions. You have been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And Lord willing, I will be here tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.